Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you appreciate our podcast, please consider making a contribution by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Enjoy. In the morning before dressing, light incense and meditate. Retire at a regular hour. Partake of food at regular intervals. Eat with moderation and never to the point of satisfaction. Receive a guest with the same attitude you have when alone. When alone, maintain the same attitude you have in receiving guests. Watch what you say. And whatever you say, practice it. When an opportunity comes, do not let it pass by. Yet always think twice before acting. Do not regret the past. Look to the future. Have the fearless attitude of a hero and the loving heart of a child. Upon retiring, Sleep as if you had entered your last sleep. Upon awakening, leave your bed behind you instantly, as if you had cast away a pair of old shoes. Welcome to day one of our harvest session. Today, already, we had a couple of ceremonies. It's quite something. Out of the dark of the morning, the Dharma drum beats, the concho, the big bell is struck, chanting, bows, incense. Sounds like a religion, doesn't it? But yet we all know it is a little different. And maybe today we can go a little bit into how it is different. Because the forms, the robes, the chanting, all of it looks like a rite. R-I-T-E, you know, a way of religious expression. And then this afternoon we chanted for Soen Shaku, whose picture is up here on the Butsudan. He died way before anyone of us was born. unless you're close to 100 years old and you're hiding it well, you probably didn't know him. So Enshaku is one of those ancestors who we really give a lot of credit. There's this famous book, I don't know if you have seen it. First, it was published under the title Sermons of a Buddhist Abbot. 
But later it was revised and then it was called Zen for Americans. And right here on the cover already, some things become clearer by looking at it. It says So and Shaku, translated by D.T. Suzuki. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of us here um, know that D.T. Suzuki was a student of So and Shaku. I'm just looking around. I think you are in great danger because there's no clock here. <laughs> I will just keep going. <laughs> and the clock will appear. <laughs> so one of the reasons why Shingeroshi is not here right now is because she is attending a big conference, not just a conference, a parliament. She is at the world's parliament of religions in Toronto. And this year is exactly 125 years, 125 years after this same kind of parliament convened during the World Fair in 1893 in Chicago. And that was the first time, at least in recorded history, that a Japanese Zen priest came to the United States. So who could that have been? Shaku Soen, or Soen Shaku, as we know him, because uh, Dr. Suzuki turned everything to be easier to be understood by Westerners. So the names turned around. Japanese would say Shaku Soen, because the family name comes first and then comes the given name. However, John Doe has his first name first, and Dr. Suzuki was very good at noticing these things. So we know it as So and Shaku. 125 years is a long time from the point of view of an individual's lifetime. But in the history of Buddhism, it's just a blip in a history of over 2,500 years. Who's good at math? How many times? 20. 20. 120th of the time Zen has set foot on this, uh, on, on this North American continent. I will not go into an assessment and a measurement where have we come in 125 years because that's not what our practice is about. 
We'll leave that to the scientists, the historians. What I put on the board are a couple of points that we know from the writings of Soen Shaku, but also about Soen Shaku. And these are kind of not rules, but guidelines that he followed himself in his approach to life. And the more I started looking into what is written about him besides Zen for Americans, I looked around in the literature a little bit, and it's interesting to see that he did was picked up once again and in recent history by scholars looking back at the Japanese Zen establishment during the wartime. I don't know if you know Brian Victoria's book, Zen at War. It took a very, very critical look at the institutions in Japan about Zen. And a little bit Soen Shaku uh, appears in there, even though he had been dead since 1919. But that brought people to the point to think, what is it that we really know about him firsthand? There, were, there, there was an autobiography, and there were published works in Japanese, quite a lot of them. But when... Uh, the scientists, the Jap Japanologists looked into it a little deeper, it became clear that a lot of these things actually uh, were written by other people. His description of his travels in America, for example, they were compiled from the notes of his translator. And an interesting thing that I learned about it here and I have to credit Michel Moore, who, is, uh, who teaches at the University of Hawaii, who looked into Soen Shaku uh, and who wrote about him in a book that was published in 2010 by Oxford University Press that's called Zen Masters. And there are some very, very interesting things to, uh, to note. First of all, we have a wonderful picture of Soen Shaku through his students, through D.T. Suzuki. And the second most notable student we know about is, of course, Nyogen Senzaki. Zen flesh and bones. Kimpo told me the story that he remembered about Soen Shaku being in the monastery, falling asleep in the hall. And his teacher, uh, Imakita Kosen would just go, come and walk around him. And then what did he say? I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. And of course, then the young monk woke up and <laughs> sweat quite a lot, I suppose. <laughs> so there are lots of little stories like that. But a lot of the stuff that was written and that is written not just about Soen Shaku, but in general about Zen teachers, is not only embellished, but at times things that are inconvenient, that are not so nice to 
tell history, uh, omitted. And I think we all know from our own recent history that it is really important that we hold everybody to who they are and that we don't start uh, to forget about the things that should not have happened. And more than that, even more important than that is the point that I want to make is that let's not be pulled into looking at these ancient masters and the living masters as idealized icons of something that really does not exist. Keep it human. Keep it human. And in the end, when I looked over this, the conclusion or the feeling I came to very deeply is that, in fact, these not-so-nice things to know make the person even more fascinating and complex that besides what they experience in their lives, besides all of that, they had the great determination to follow through with this practice. And that is something very, very inspiring. So let me tell you a little bit about Soen, I, I just will call him Soen in this, in this talk. So he was born in Takahama, which is in the Fukui prefecture in Japan. And the year was 1860. His father came from a samurai family. His name was Ichinose Goemon Nobosuke. And that family's samurai, the, the, the samurai family, had moved from a different place, from Aizu, which is much more north, and uh, took up farming. So they were farmers since the 17th century. His mother's name was Yasko, which we know is a very common name. And her family was the Hirata family. There were six children. And Soen was one of two sons, so four girls and two boys. The older brother's name was Chutaro, and he plays a quite important role in Soen's life. Traditionally, in the, Jap in the Japanese, uh, especially in the samurai tradition, the elder son, the firstborn son, is the one who will carry on what the father's family did. Chutaro was the older son. And he, in filial piety, he did what he had to do. But what he really wanted to be, guess what he really wanted to be? He really wanted to be a monk. He really wanted to be a monk. 
Chutaro had frequently gone to Buddhist temples since early age, and at times he was at Jokoji, which is a Rinzai temple in the Obama prefecture. He really wanted to become a monk, but it was not possible by the fact that he was born the oldest son. So Soen was persuaded to accomplish his brother's dream. And he writes, I just took the place of my elder brother. Of course, you will read a lot of things that Japanese Zen masters write about their own upbringing and so on. And you will always find that the fashionable thing is to put yourself down wherever you can. That is the style of it. So it sounds like he just filled in, but I don't think so. In the end, one of the decisions he mentioned is his brother said to him, you know, even emperors become disciples of Buddhist teachers, putting the Buddhist clergy even higher than the emperor, who, of course, at the time in 1860, the Tenno was still highly revered. So the Dharma is really important. He writes again that he joined this path without a precise objective, but rather out of juvenile curiosity. I think those are both wonderful things to start with. How old do you think he was? Ten. Ten years old. It was, he was 10 years old when a monk by the name of Eke Shuken came. He was a well-known priest from the Miyoshinji tradition. He actually resided at Miyoshinji, where he is the one who founded uh, Tokko-an, which is the Miyoshinji training monastery. And he was somehow related to the family. So when he came and visited, um, Chutaro spoke to him and because he needed the help of the priest, because the parents said, why should he become a monk? It was always better to have two pairs of hands more to work at home than having them in Gasho somewhere in a monastery where they wouldn't contribute to the family life and income. So he came to, to visit the family in Taka, Takahama. And he said to Soen, mm, yeah. if you intend to become a great monk, I'll consent to it. No pressure. Of course, the parents allowed him to go, and he was ordained by the name Soko. Japan was a very weird kind of 
political system at the time. Everybody had to be registered. And if somebody dies, it, it was a major pain to get somebody off those registers. So his monk's name was changed to a name of another monk who had died, basically to allow, uh, to allow the monastery to not have to jump through all of these bureaucratic hurdles. That's how he ended up with the name Soen. Soen means expression of the great principle. So then when you, when you start reading these descriptions of the admirers who wrote biographies of, of Soen Shaku, you will also read that he graduated from college and then he went for three years to Sri Lanka. And this Michel Moore, he took the time to actually look into it, to see it. It's not as easy as nowadays where you can check if somebody went to college or not by just looking at their transcripts online. But uh, actually, he, he did go to the college. And he didn't do that well. He actually never finished. He never finished because he had finished something else before already. When he came into the monastery, at first he, he studied with Eke Roshi, the Myoshinji sub-temple that is reserved for the chief abbot because he was the Kancho at that time. So Soen was entrusted to another sub-temple of Keninji, which is more in the middle of, of Kyoto, where he studied and practiced with Shungai Tosen, who became very popular and suddenly instead of just four or five monks, there were 40. And there was a lot. So there was at age 14. They formed their own little student monk organization because the temple couldn't really support 40 monks that easily. So they went on Takuhatsu themselves, those student monks, at age 14. And they were very proud of themselves because the, the right in the middle of Kyoto, Keninji, is described by Soen Shaku himself like this. Keninji is located, located in the midst of Kyoto's amusement quarter. Right outside the temple gate are the Gion and Miyagawa wards, famous breeding grounds for wasting money in drink and pleasures. In short, these are the demons' dwellings. Younger co-disciples, and I thought that it was fascinating to be in such a place, observing strict monastic rules. A Zen monastery popping up at the very core of these demons' dwellings. And we were all studying hard. So quite a challenge. 
The next thing that happened, though, is that Shungai died, his teacher, right there at Kenninji, in 1875. He was only 45 years old. And it was a big shock to Soen. So those young monks, they decided to engage in a 49-day mourning retreat to honor their teacher. And it was scheduled in a way that it would culminate with Rohatsu. We all know it's the hardest week of meditation training held in the cold time. And one of the students that was sitting there with Soen, his name was Mokurai Soen Takeda, a fellow monk. He was described of weak constitution. But later he became the chief abbot of Kenningji, so he couldn't have been quite that weak. And Soen veiled his uh, expression intentionally, again, out of that modesty. Uh, but he really credited his fellow monk with helping him through the, those 49 days. And Soen, now at 15, reached this point of awakening. And he writes about that. It is really at that time that I realized the existence of this one great matter right under my kesa. And from there he took off, I mean, his career with other teachers was quite impressive and he became a Dharma heir of Ko and so on, finally, in 1883, at the age of 23. That is very, very young. Very young. You reach basically the furthest you can go in the Rinzai system besides the ranks that you have in, in the bureaucracy up to the chief abbot at age 23. And then what do you do? You go to college. <laughs> Calculus. Reading English. It was very distressing for him. It was distressing because it also made him question his future in the clergy. He was even thinking of returning to regular life outside of the Zen tradition. Now, of course, in the Rinzai system, they, everybody knew about this, this young Roshi, Soen. He is quite something. We have to make sure that he does not leave our tradition. So it was, it, it was suggested 
to do something to trick him to stay. Quite crafty. So it was suggested to him by somebody in that organization. Your determination is to find the way. What about traveling to Sri Lanka and investigating the source of our tradition? You should not give up your original intention. This appears to be the real reason why So and went to Sri Lanka. It is completely romanticized when you just read what his admirers wrote about him. But he went there. He wasn't doing well in college. He was about to leave the priesthood. And somebody suggested that, the geographical cure. And it worked. It worked. He went to learn, and he learned Sanskrit and Pali and all of that. He was very, very knowledgeable in all of that. His classical Chinese was excellent. Very much so. The secondary thing that was described is that he was waking up to his young age, also in college, and became loud. Indulging in noisy drinking, which was embarrassing for his fellow students. That switch from being in the monastery right around the Gion district, calling it the demons, and now the demons come into your life. So you can see that even somebody who is so gifted that at the age of 23 they become eligible to fully lead a sangha. It is very difficult. His, one of his worst subjects was English. That's why he needed a translator. But his writing still in Japanese was very, very good, but very, very different than he would have written in English. And the piece that stands between what we know about his writings in English and his original Japanese writings is Diti Suzuki. Let me just give you a little portion of the speech that he held at this World Congress of the Religions. Michel Moore translated it in, from Japanese to English, also noting that it had never been checked, actually, what Suzuki wrote against what the original is that exists in four different uh, iterations. So Soren writes, Ladies and gentlemen, all the various things succeed to each other in the unlimited dimension of time and are aligned in the endless dimension of space. But what are they made of? As far as I can tell, they emerge as the result of two mental causes. And these two mental causes are our nature and our emotions. 
Here's the translation by D.T. Suzuki. It's the same speech, same title. If we open our eyes and look at the universe, we observe the sun and moon and the stars and the sky, mountains, rivers, plants, animals, fishes, and birds on the earth. Cold and warmth come alternately. Shine and rain change from time to time without ever reaching an end. Again, let us close our eyes and calmly reflect upon ourselves. From morning to evening, we are agitated by the feelings of pleasure and pain, love and hate, sometimes full of ambition and desire, sometimes called to the utmost excitement of reason and will. Thus, the action of mind is like an endless issue of a spring of water. As the phenomena of the external world are various and marvelous, so is the internal attitude of human mind. Shall we ask for the explanation of these marvelous phenomena? Why is the universe in a constant flux? Why do things change? Why is the mind subjected to constant agitation? For these, Buddhism offers only one explanation, namely, the law of cause and effect. That's a little bit longer, isn't it? Isn't it? It is not off the mark or anything, you know? But it shows really how important Diti Suzuki's position in between here was and... and um, how much also he thought had to be explained to us Westerners. Let me repeat what Soen wrote originally. Ladies and gentlemen, all the various things succeed to each other in the unlimited dimension of time and are aligned in the endless dimension of space. But what are they made of? As far as I can tell, they emerge as the result of the two mental causes, and these two mental causes are nature and emotions. So, it's very interesting. From this very, it was laden with Buddhist terms. Uh, because he was such a great scholar. And the translation makes it understandable and digestible for us in the Western world. And it had to be interesting. Who was there at that same World Congress? As far as I remember, I think it was Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna comes speaking perfectly English from India and dazzles the audience with the explanation of thousands of years of Indian philosophy built up to this one point where it gets presented to the West by somebody speaking perfect English. And then you have this Japanese guy who has to speak through a translator. So Ramakrishna, and I'm pretty sure that I'm right, that he did dazzle the crowds while there were a few people 
to whom what Suzuki had translated really spoke. And one of them was Paul Karras, who was a publisher out of Chicago. And I really was surprised when I looked him up because he actually was born in Germany. He was educated in Germany. He had the doctorate from the university in Tübingen. And then he came to America and became a publisher. Quite interesting, quite another thing. So after the Congress of Religions, Soren continued traveling and returned to Japan. But we all know from various stories that he returned in the year 1905-1906 back to America following the invitation of the Russells. I think it is really important also to understand why he did that. Why did he go and why didn't he stay in Japan? know that the, the Japanese story is that the islands were created by these two gods, Izanagi, Izanami, with a spear that touched the ocean. And then it goes on and on. And then comes the Tenno, the emperor. So the nationalism at that time when Shakusoin lived was very strong. Very strong. And also imagine his background, his family, they were summarized. So there, there was some kind of martial element in there. And at the end of that century and the beginning of the next one, there were many wars. One of those wars was between Japan and Russia. The Russian, the, the the, the Russian-Japanese war, I don't know who comes first, Japanese-Russian, Russian-Japanese, it doesn't matter because, as we know, in war, there are only losers. And so in Shaku had to learn that himself. So he did identify the Russians as the enemy. He wrote about it. He, in particular, picked out one Russian politician who, who was under Alexander III and called him the giant leader of the non-Buddhist evil spirits who regards himself as the messenger of God. So, there was a very distinct religious element in there that made him think that fighting the demons and defeating them was as much external as internal. He said, outside the mind there is no Buddha. How could one notice a demon with the eyes? 
and he volunteered to go with the troops to Manchuria to fight that holy war of his understanding of what Buddhism should do. However, the task proved much harder than he could ever anticipate. Rather than preaching, guess what he was doing? He spent most of his time going to field hospitals. Flocks of wounded soldiers receiving emergency treatment. That's not the time they're interested in seeing anyone from the religious background. Conducting more funerals than he had ever before. Many soldiers did not survive. And in his journal, so the entry for May 17th, he recalls being so overwhelmed in front of two mutilated soldiers that he could not chant the sutras. Besides that, that is not, it wasn't the army of the 20th century. Sleep-deprived and starving, the Japanese soldiers themselves, they haven't had the opportunity to wash themselves in a month. Laundry? Forget about it. And everybody had fleas. He got sick. Two months took a toll on his body and he started complaining of abdominal pain. Finally, he got permission to follow some prince, Fushimi Sadanado, who was recalled to Japan. He could go back with him. He spent two months trying to heal in an onsen, one of those wonderful springs, saw the doctors and everything. But nothing really helped. If we talk in modern psychological terms, you have the Zen master suffering here from post-traumatic stress disorder. His holy war had turned out completely different. And you find a note in his diary writing about why he went to America. And one of the things why he wanted to come here is to get well and to recover. But it's never mentioned recover and get well from what? Now you know. Stories like this make him much closer to who we are, what we can feel, and at the same time also more extraordinary, because fortunately not too many of us had to bury 
soldiers or chant sutras in front of mutilated bodies. It's quite something, isn't it? And it is this practice that made it possible for him to still continue after that and teach many, many people very important things and to write against war from having known what war means. He also had one student who was supposed to be his successor and also spoke perfect English, was educated both in the Western sense and the Japanese sense. And this student of his, who was supposed to go with him to America in the future, was called into war in Manchuria after Soen had returned himself. And as it goes, of course, he was killed. A lot of really heavy things happening to Soen Shaku. A lot of things happening to us. But we can make a difference. And he showed that even though he might have been flawed, he, he at least tried. And that's what we can all do here during this week and during our lives. He wrote down these guidelines for himself to remind him to stay disciplined, to remind him of what he had experienced himself. So we will not chew through them as if they were the gospel of so and shaku. <laughs> but what they are, they are the expression of a life that was lived and that had experiences that were from the most shocking to the most sublime. But they're the expression of a real human being who walked the path of a bodhisattva and changed from somebody who did not reflect on war in the same way that he did after and changed into somebody who wrote about the silence of horror on the battlefield. He was right in the sense that it's not the enemy outside that we have to address for this. And overall, it wouldn't be an enemy. We have to find in ourselves, inside, that what so easily would be called the enemy, what would be demonized, and we have to become most intimate with it, become so intimate that it is not a demon anymore. That is what Zen practice 
can help us with. So, so in Shaku. Next year, it will be a hundred years that he has departed this world. But the story of a seeker who crosses oceans, who makes great strides for generations to come, and still remaining a human being with all the possible faults, shortcomings, but the deep dedication to bring this full circle. So let's be inspired. by him and each other. Again, here's the word. Together. Thanks for listening to this Zen Study Society podcast. If you found this podcast to be meaningful or helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you and have a peaceful day.